0: Um, I want to ask the question, are evangelicals born again? It's the title of a very insightful book that was written a few years ago by a pastor, writer, uh, R. Kent Hughes. And in it he tells a time when he led a man to personal faith in Christ. Now, nothing unusual about that, you might think, but only that the man in question had approached Hughes at a Christian conference, was himself heavily involved in church leadership. He was the son of a minister. He had attended Christian school. He was the graduate of a prestigious Christian college. He had married a Christian, and his children were also believers. Yet this man confessed to Kent Hughes that he knew nothing of the experience described in the Bible as being born again. As a child, he had gone forward after an evangelistic meeting. He'd even been baptized. He knew his Bible well. And he offered admirable prayers at dinner or in public whenever called upon. He knew, But he knew with great conviction that he had never truly come in repentance. And bowed the knee to Jesus Christ. His religious experience was nothing more than conformance to conventional piety. It sounds in many ways that he was a little bit like the man in our reading, Nicodemus. He was a Pharisee, a member of the ruling council. In verse 10 there in John 3, it tells us that he was also a teacher. A little bit of background for you if you don't already know the ruling council or the Sanhedrin had 70 members who were responsible for religious decisions and also under the Romans for civil rule. So in many respects, we could say that Nicodemus represented the best in the nation. Well-educated, well-positioned, a religious leader and a civil leader. A bit of a celebrity, someone that people looked up to. But Jesus explains to Nicodemus that religious knowledge, social standing, political influence and ethnicity are not a sufficient basis for a relationship with God. Jesus says, a person must be born into God's family by the Holy Spirit. Now the theological word we use to describe this period of being born again is regeneration. That your word, Regeneration only appears twice in Scripture, in Matthew 19, 28, and Titus 3, 5. And it literally means new birth. In Matthew 19 and 28, it says there, Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, at the renewal, that is the regeneration of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. But in Titus 3 and 5, Paul says, Jesus, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of regeneration, or rebirth, as the NIV translates it, and renewal by the Holy Spirit. And it's um, just a note for those of us who would claim to understand evangelical doctrine and theology, that Paul says here that it's the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. Just take a note of that as we go into the sermon. So, regeneration literally means new birth, but it also denotes for us a change of heart. In Matthew nineteen twenty-eight, the word is equivalent to the restoration of all things. But here in Titus 3 and 5, It signifies a change of heart elsewhere, spoken of in the Bible as, first of all, a passing from death to life, or becoming a new creature in Christ Jesus, being born again, as in our scriptures tonight. In Romans 12 and 2, a renewal of the mind, and Ephesians 2 and 6, the resurrection from the dead, and Ephesians 1 and 5, being made alive. These are all aspects of the same theme that we're looking at Tonight in regeneration. Now, this change of heart is ascribed to the work of the Holy Spirit. It does not originate with man, but with God. Here's a quote from Easton's Bible Dictionary: says, As to the nature of the change, it consists in the implanting of a new principle or disposition in the soul, the impartation of spiritual life to those who are by nature dead in trespass and sins. So there's really good news in this for us tonight, because if you're not a Christian and you feel that you could never be, um, actually the Bible itself says, uh, well, that's okay. You couldn't become a Christian really, even if you wanted to. It's the work of God. And we're gathered in this place as God's people, coming to God's living word, And I trust that those of us who are his followers, with that expectation, that this powerful God that we serve and love and and want to worship and listen to tonight, speaking through his word, that he will come and actually do his work in this place. That he will take his word and speak new life into those who need to be born again. And so as I preach this word, I encourage you to pray that with me. That God would take his word and use it. Regeneration is to begin life anew in relation to God, his manner of thinking, his feeling, his acting, with reference to spiritual things, undergoing a fundamental and permanent revolution. So, a very weighty tome written by Jameson Fawcett and Brown says. Last week, Colin very helpfully looked at redemption as an aspect of God's love. And this week, we're going to continue with this wonderful subject, Within this series, regeneration. And uh, acknowledging rightly uh, where it's due, uh, I'm borrowing the headlines, or the headings for the sermon from Warden Wearsby's expository outline on the New Testament. Not because I didn't spend time this week trying to think up my own, but because I couldn't think of any better. So, thank you, Warden. Actually, there's a strange, a strange quirk here because. Warren Wearsby actually goes at great lengths in his commentary to Corinthians, saying that one day pastors who use his outlines will stand in judgment before God and not spending time in the Word. Well, he shouldn't have given us such good outlines, and we wouldn't be so tempted. But what can we do when, like Nicodemus, our best just isn't good enough? And so we turn to God's Word. Let's look again at verses 1 through 5. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. How can a man be born again when he is old? Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. So there's the necessity there in these verses of the new birth. We must be born again, first of all, to experience the kingdom of God. Nicodemus was undoubtedly a moral man, maybe even a devoutly religious man, a teacher of the Jews, Yet he did not understand the truth about being born again, or as we could uh, uh, translate it, being born from above. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 2, 10 through 14, that the spiritual truths cannot be understood by the carnal mind of sinful man. John tells us here that Nicodemus came to Jesus at night. Now, it's obviously just a reference to the time of day when he approached them. But I think that we can also truly describe Nicodemus as a person who was in the dark when it comes to spiritual things. See, his basic problem is one that he shares with so many even today. He confuses the spiritual with the physical. See there in verse 4. When Jesus said, born again, Nicodemus immediately thought of birth In a physical sense. So Jesus goes on to explain that his reference is to spiritual birth. All of us, each and every one of us, are born into sin. Our first birth makes us children of Adam. And this means that we are children of wrath and children of disobedience. Paul, writing in Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3, makes this quite clear. He says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects. Of wrath. So becoming a Christian doesn't mean that we just try harder by sort of renovating the old nature or trying to become better people in our own strength. Becoming a Christian means that we are given a brand new life and a brand new identity by the Holy Spirit in the work of regeneration. That's actually why in bygone days, when pagans were converted to Christianity, they were given a Christian name. Saul becomes Paul. Uh, And and still today, in many parts of the world, uh, the church still continues to practice that sort of thing, not just for the convenience of pronunciation from people from the West who minister in strange lands with strange languages, but as people come to Jesus... Their old name that meant something in their paganism is changed to something that means something in their new life. No amount of education, no amount of religion, or no amount of discipline can actually change our old nature. We must receive a new nature from God. We must be born again to experience the kingdom of God. That's actually huge contention in this little book. Our evangelicals born again. In it, he, he tracks through the beatitudes, uh, right from the first beatitude through to the last one, and says there's actually a natural progression. When you become a Christian, all of these characteristic traits of following Jesus and his character and nature ought to become our experience as we grow in him. There's a huge question mark, therefore, over someone who said they became a Christian. A way back whenever it was, and there is no difference, no change uh, up until this point, whether this time uh, lapses a matter of weeks, months, years, or a lifetime. Jesus says, it's not a case of just trying to be better in yourself. It's not a case of trying to take that old nature and, and, and sort of smarten it up somehow. He says, you must be born again. You must be born from above. It's not an internal experience. It's something that happens from heaven. It's a divine intervention into our old nature. We must be born to ex- again to experience the kingdom of God. And we must also be born again to enter the kingdom of God. Now, it's Jesus as the one who makes the differential. So, that's why we're going to look at it a little bit in detail. Paul describes the kingdom of God in Romans 14, 17 thus. He says... For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. So there's Paul giving us a definition of what the kingdom of God is about. Remember, Jesus says that that my kingdom is not of this world. And he describes in, in numerous parables Uh, various aspects of kingdom principles or the nature of the kingdom of God. And none of them relate to something that is in the physical or the temporal or that which, you know, we can see, feel, touch, taste, etc. It has a spiritual dimension to it. So, in other words, the kingdom has nothing to do with our immediate experience in the physical world in which you and I live. Nicodemus wrongly assumed that being a Jew... Living according to the law would satisfy God and somehow gain him credence and reward from his creator. What he had misunderstood is that ever since the fall of Adam, all humans have literally been born outside of paradise and are lost in their trespasses and sins. The kingdom of God is barred to everyone unless they are born into it. Biblical truth. Bottom line, no one gets into the kingdom of God unless he or she is born from above. When a sinner trusts Christ, he or she enters God's kingdom and family. Only by being born again can we enter the kingdom of God. And so from the necessity of the new birth to the nature of the new birth. Let's read these verses again, shall we? Beginning at verse 6, flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised, Jesus says, at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases, you hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things? I tell you the truth. We speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen. But still, you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. First of all, we learn here that the new birth is a spiritual birth. What is born of flesh, the old nature, is flesh and is subject to God's wrath and its, His eternal punishment. But what is born of the Spirit is of Spirit, and is subject to God's justification and eternal reward. This new nature is discussed uh, in Second Peter 1, verses 3-4. through 4. There Peter says, His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them, get this, so that you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. The point is very clear. You cannot produce a spiritual birth with physical means. No matter what that physical means may be. And so at this point, I'm going to pause and just say something briefly um, in consideration about what the passage is addressing when it refers to being born of water and the Spirit. I don't want to go into the discussions on it. You can look them up for yourself, either in a a weighty tome, theological tome, or check it out on the internet. But I want to rule out any concept of regenerative baptism. Since the action of physically applying water The human body, irrespective of the amount of water that you use, cannot produce a spiritual experience. Born of water, here in John 3, does not refer to water baptism in any form or fashion. Since the Bible never speaks of baptism. In the concept of life. It speaks of baptism in the concept of death. Not birth. The water here referred to in verse 5. Is to the physical birth. It's very obvious from the context. Of what Jesus is saying. And what John is recording for us here. That every baby is born of water. It's the very thing that Nicodemus himself mentions in verse 4. The new birth. Or the regeneration is only ever produced by spiritual means. And the spiritual means are, first of all, the Spirit of God. John 3 and 6, we read it. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to spirit. If you were to turn over a few chapters to John 6 and verse 63, there the word says, the Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and they are life. Secondly, the spiritual means is the word of God. 1 Peter 1 and 23 says, For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. James 1 and 18, he chose "...to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all that he had created." So here we see that spiritual birth is the result of the imperishable seed of the word of God, planted, or maybe even implanted, in the heart and the mind of an unbeliever. And then the Holy Spirit uses that word to produce faith that responds to the challenge to repent from sin... And at the moment the unregenerate person confesses their need of salvation, the Holy Spirit births them from above in the greatest miracle of all, regeneration. The new birth is a spiritual birth, but it is also a mysterious birth. Verse 8 contains a little bit of a wordplay that cannot actually be adequately expressed in English. I'm sure you're familiar with the Greek word pneuma. Some of you may be familiar with the Greek word pneuma spelt incorrectly, um, but spelt correctly and, and translated and understood correctly, it means both wind and spirit. So what Jesus is actually saying here is that the work of the spirit pneuma is invisible and mysterious like the blowing of the wind. Pneuma. Man controls neither, is the point I think is being made here. Both are mysterious. So Jesus gently, yet very directly, challenges Nicodemus' ignorance regarding the renewing work of the Holy Spirit. I wonder if the Lord's tone was ever sarcastic. Certainly his words are. He says, If you're Israel's teacher, then surely you must be familiar with such things as spiritual renewal. Because it's a concept not simply contained in the New Testament. It's there in the Old Testament, in Ezekiel 37, in the prophecy concerning the valley of the dry bones, God breathes his life into the dead skeletons. And further promises, in addition to that action of, of regenerating them in the prophecy, he promises to put his spirit within them. It's a mysterious experience, but it's also a real experience. The new birth is a real birth. Many things are mysterious, but still real. Jesus assures us Nicodemus, that the new birth is not a fantasy, it is a reality. If the person, if a person will but believe Jesus' words and receive him, he or she will discover how real and wonderful that new birth is. Uh, I was teaching at the greenhouse, having a discussion with those who attend there on Thursday night about how to lead someone to Christ and how to do a follow up with a new believer. And someone raised the question at the end. And said that, I, you know, I have a friend who, who um, says, I invited Jesus into my heart and nothing happened. The scripture says that when you are born from above, something most definitely happens. The old nature is gone. A new nature has been given to you. You have new life in Christ. And maybe that's the challenge for us. Are evangelicals in Charlotte Chapel born again? Is it possible that like the man in Hugh's story, or like the man in the story here with Nicodemus, that we also have that same kind of pedigree? But we can honestly say that we know nothing of the reality of an experience described here in John 3 as being born from above. The reality that without God and without the work of his Holy Spirit in our lives, that we're lost in this world and we're lost in eternity. We try to do our very best, somehow hoping that that's going to be enough. And Jesus says, it's not enough. You must be born again. So finally, let's look at the basis for this new birth. In verses 14 through 21. Let me read them again to you just for a reminder. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. First of all, the basis for this new birth is that Christ had to die. It was no accident. Yet again, Jesus refers Israel's teacher to the Old Testament and the account of the brazen serpent in the desert. If you want to read that story, you'll find it in Numbers 21. It comes at a time in the history of the Jewish people, of the Hebrews. They're wandering in the desert, having got out of Egypt and still not settled in the Promised Land. In the desert, one of the perils they encountered was poisonous snakes. The snakes bit the people and subsequently they died. The people, that is. So Moses was told, as a remedy for this, to cast a brass serpent and hold it up before the people so that they could, by faith, look upon it and experience healing. The principle is this, relating to John 3. Sin kills the unregenerate man or woman. Jesus was made sin for us. And as we look to Christ by faith, we're saved. Jesus had to die before man could be born again. Jesus' death brings us life. What an incredible paradox. Paul picks up that theme in first, second Corinthians sorry, 5 and verse 21, where he says, God made him who had no sin be sin for us so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Christ had to die, therefore sinners have to believe. The Bible says in Acts 4 and 12, Salvation is found in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Faith in Christ is the only means of salvation. In the desert, Moses was not told to destroy the snakes, find an antidote, or try to prevent the people from being bitten. Instead, the simple solution to their problem was to look by faith on the brazen serpent and be healed. Simply, if they didn't look, they died. If they did look, they were saved. In Jesus Christ, there is no other solution for man's sin problem. If you fail to look to Jesus in faith, you will die in your trespass and sin. But if you look to Jesus, you will live. Those who refuse to look by faith to the Son of God and believe in his saving work on the cross, where he died for the sin of the world, are lost forever and remain under God's condemnation. They will never experience regeneration because they refuse to come and experience life through the only means available. The sinner's natural habitat is darkness. He or she doesn't like to come into the light where the real self will be exposed. Yet sin, unless sin is exposed and properly dealt with, It won't be forgiven. I put in brackets in my own notes, can't be forgiven. It cannot be forgiven other than in the scrutiny of what Jesus has done and what the Holy Spirit does in our lives. You see, the exhortation here is not that you may be born again. The exhortation is that you must be born again. Can I make a deep, heart, earnest plea with you? Don't mess with your eternity. You must be born again. And so, in conclusion, I want to um, kind of pick up on that little leaflet that Richard reintroduced to us, or introduced to some of us this morning, Journey into Life. And think about Nicodemus' journey to life. Nicodemus' journey into life follows a fairly familiar pattern, and I don't have time to look up the scriptures with you, but in John 3, we find Nicodemus in a state of confusion. And a lot of people hearing the gospel for the first time, or having the Bible explained to them, being exposed to Christianity, well, it's easy to get in a state of confusion, isn't it? Who is this God? What does God look like? How can we know he's there? Who made him? Is there three gods or one God? It's all very confusing at the beginning. He's totally ignorant of eternal truths. But the next time we find Nicodemus in Scripture is in John 7, verses 45 through 53. And there we find him in a state of conviction. He's willing to hear what Jesus has to say. The ruling council, the Sanhedrin, are are completely uh, ridiculing what Jesus is about, his ministry and his message. But Nicodemus says, you know, even our own law says you can't judge a man guilty until you've heard what he has to say. So Nicodemus is already opening up his heart and mind to be willing to respond to Jesus' words. And the last time that we hear of Nicodemus in John's Gospel is in chapter 19. Jesus has been crucified, and along with Joseph of Arimathea, we find Nicodemus openly confessing Jesus Christ publicly. What a journey from confusion through conviction to confession. Are you born again? You must be. It's an aspect of God's love. If you've never responded to that, can I invite you to respond to that love now? as we close in prayer. If the Spirit of God is taking the Word of God and applying it to your own heart tonight, can I encourage you to pray along with me a very simple prayer of confession, an invitation for Jesus to save your soul. Just pray after me quietly in your own heart or mind. Lord Jesus, I know that I am a sinner. I know that I need you to save me. Lord, will you please do that as I ask you? Amen.